Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, and by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Welcome to this Under the Covers episode of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the Friday version of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where host Landis Wade and his author guests get under the covers. That's right. We get in and out because there are just too many interesting books and engaging authors in the region and not enough time. And just like the longer version of the show, you'll learn interesting facts about the authors and their books, and the authors will read their work. And also, like the longer version, you will find images, links, and information about the authors in the show notes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. We are a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network, a uh, collection of Charlotte podcasts produced in and centering around the Queen City, and also a proud member of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, broadcasting radio shows and podcasts about authors to a worldwide audience. I'm Landis Wade, the producer and host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer. I'm the author of a trilogy of books where lawyers save Christmas, kind of a cross between My Cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street, and I write stories, and I love books, and I love dogs, and I love beaches and mountains and fly fishing and sports and reading and more, and I also love getting under the covers with my authors. So let's get to it. Hey, listeners, welcome to this Under the Covers episode of Charlotte Readers Podcast. Today, uh, I'm excited to be visiting with Natasha Boyd and talking with her about her book, The Indigo Girl, The True and Riveting Story of Eliza Lucas Pinckney, a woman ahead of her time and mother of one of the United States founding fathers. The book takes on the true story of young Eliza Lucas Pinckney and the indigo trade in the 1700s near Charlestown, South Carolina. So influential was Eliza Pinckney in the formation of this young nation that President George Washington, at his own request, served as a pallbearer at her funeral. The New York Journal of Books called the book an outstanding work of fiction that introduces a historical figure with whom few will have heard of, but who played a vital role in the economic history of the colony of South Carolina. Natasha Boyd incorporates the social issues of racial inequality, lack of women's rights, and class distinctions into a story of one of America's most remarkable women. Natasha, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Landis. Yeah, and congratulations on this book. Thank you. It's yeah. great that it keeps uh, keeps trucking along. <laughs> it keeps coming along. So n- n- note to listeners, The Indigo Girl, um, it was long listed for the Southern Book Prize, a Texas Library Association Lariat Award winner. It was a Southern Independent Booksellers Association Okra pick, it also made the USA Today bestsellers list in January 2020. That had to make you feel good. It did. And guess what? Yeah. It made it again last week and again this week. Can you believe it? Oh, well, they must have known, <laughs> they must have known you were getting ready to appear on Charlotte Reader's Podcast. They must have. <laughs> it also yeah. helps that it was on sale right now. So <laughs> that, that, does, that does make a difference. Uh, so um, before we talk about this book, and by the way, my cousin Jessica, who lives out in Washington State, she read your book. She told me I had to get you on the podcast, which got me interested in the book. And then I told my wife I was interviewing you, and she said, wait a minute, is that Eliza? And then she, she'd been a fifth grade teacher for years, and they had something called 
wax museum. And every year she made sure that one of the students dressed up as Eliza in the wax museum. So all all kind of connections here. Okay. Before the book though, let's talk about you. You live in Atlanta. Um, You've got uh, like me, you have dogs. You, you say you start out your day with a strong cup of English breakfast tea. And I'm just Mm -hmm. curious, I'm just curious, why do you need that burst uh, to get your day started? I don't know a lot of people who don't have a little caffeine in their mornings, but I don't do well with coffee. And also I grew up in England, as you can probably tell from my accent. So um, there was never a bad time for a cuppa. Um, But as I've gotten older, I can't have caffeine after 11am, otherwise I'll be awake all night. So I do it in the morning, but I really go for it. I have two tea bags per cup and I use Tetley's British Blend um with honey and milk so so we're not doing the afternoon (laughs) tea with the uh the little cakes and everything no no scones and jam and clotted cream for me no (laughs) all right well so so another thing about you and your writing you've been a featured speaker of romance writers of america georgia romance writers international women's club of atlanta uh your books have been translated into uh german french italian and indonesian and you sold romances in at least 53 different countries. And there seems to be a lot of romance in your life. Uh, or, mm-hmm. or, or should I say writing life? I don't know. Oh, well, there is in my real life, too. I can't say that. My husband's in the house. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, no, I did. I started out um, writing romance. Still do, as a matter of fact. Um, I've always been a very wide reader. Um And there's just something about a great romance novel, the feel-good aspect, knowing that, you know, a woman's going to find maybe not what she wants, but maybe what she needs at the end of it. And, um, and, you know, modern romance is so much about self-actualized women. Um, And so it seemed like a natural, I just fell into it naturally. But of course, um, yes, writing this, this historical fiction was definitely a departure um, and a big step. So, yeah, and Eliza Pinkney's story, which we're going to talk more about in this episode, though, it doesn't quite fit the romance genre. I mean, the last thing she needed was mm-hmm. a man. Was a man. She was fiercely independent, uh, although she does find a man eventually, uh, and there's a bit of a romance in it. But it's a different kind of romantic story. I take it from the, uh, from the other books you've written. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. I, this is definitely. I mean, I wouldn't call it a romance. Um, obviously, um, she's a young girl. And um, I think a lot of her peers at the time were all, you know, very excited about um, having them getting themselves married off to somebody of note. Um, But she was very much involved with um, focusing on her land and um, building a business for her family's um, to secure her family's future. So she was very different from the girls of the day. But, um, you know, as in most great stories, there are there's always romance romance always seems to be the backbone of the story somehow yeah so so what possessed you uh natasha i think i know the answer because i've read about you and and uh had some advanced information before the podcast but for our listeners uh kind of what possessed you to put your romance writing on hold for a moment and spend the time you needed to spend to tell the story of eliza pinkney tell us about that Gosh, well, um, so my husband is from Charleston, South Carolina. um, And so we visited there all the time. Um, And then we happened to be living in Hilton Head, um, which is just about two hours away from Charleston. 
And I went to an Indigo exhibit at a, um, uh, like a little gallery was having an Indigo exhibit with um, artisans, craft makers, textile makers, all that kind of thing. Um, And I love the color. But while I was there, I overheard a living Eliza Lucas Pinckney. That's Margaret Pickett. She's actually written a great autobiography on Eliza. Unfortunately, it wasn't available at the time of writing my book. That would have been really useful. Um, But she kept talking. She stayed in character all night. And she talked about, um, you know, that she was so young and her father had left her in charge. And she kept talking. And I was like, wait, is this a real person? And she's from Charleston. And I've been married to a man from Charleston at the time for sort of, you know, 15 years. And I've never heard about this woman. This is insane. So I went away and I looked her up. And sure enough, she did exist. She was real. She was very young when her father left her in charge, just 16 years old. And I was sort of incensed on her behalf that nobody was talking about her and Nobody really mentioned her. I mean, she was sort of a footnote to historical record. Um, And I thought, well, somebody needs to write her story. It wasn't going to be me because um, I absolutely loathed history in school. Um, but as time went on, um, and in fact, I, I, it sort of grew, like became this passion in me. I kept looking up things about her and I would stumble across various things. And I didn't realize that my subconscious was very hard at work. Um, but I met with my agent um, and she said to me, it was the end of a really late night. It was actually a publishing conference in Charleston. And she said, what story is in your heart that you're too afraid to write? And I just got full body chills. And I said, well, there's this story. And I just sort of, you know, vomited it out of my mouth. And my brain was saying, shut up, shut up. She's going to make you write it. Shush, shush. Um, And so, of course, we got to the end of me telling the story. And she said, you have to write that. And I sort of just made the decision there that, you know, then and there, like, why not me? Nobody's heard about her. I mean, how bad, how bad can I get it? You know, how wrong can I get it? Um, and there was a lot of uh, space between the historical documents. So it did really have to be historical fiction because there was a lot to fill in. But I think the most important thing was her personality was so strong um, that that sort of just pulled me along for the ride. Yeah, we're going to talk more about that uh, before the show's out. But one of the things I think you told me, too, was that uh, you thought more women's stories needed to be told and the older, the better. Because as you said, we need to understand that women have always been strong, resilient, and intelligent. And uh, you said they haven't always gotten their due. And you thought, hey, well, I'm a, I'm a writer. I, I can, I'm going to do this, right? Yeah, I really do feel quite strongly about that. You know, I just didn't, you know, it's just very common for self-actualized uh, and powerful and strong women to sort of, um, sort of be uh, demonized you know, and sort of looked down upon for their ambition and feared for their ambition. But we've always been this way. And maybe we've just done a really good job of hiding it. Or maybe history has always been written about men by men. And um, yeah. (laughs) I'm going to have somebody talking about the Bible too. I think that's uh, probably true of the Bible as well. So, uh, okay. Before we get into the covers, let's talk about the book cover itself. Uh, it's uh, got a lot of blue on the cover, right? It does. Yeah. Um, you know, being the indigo girl, that would be the normal uh, decision an art director might make. But I was very lucky that the um, that the publisher Blackstone have an incredible 
fine artists that they work with and everything on the color on the cover all the elements were all done by hand she's got beautiful videos of her sort of ink dropping indigo into water and watching it spread across the water and taking pictures and putting parchment paper in it um and so she really did an incredible job um but of course i think what people will also notice about the cover is that there is no face on the girl um, and that's because, despite what people come across on the internet, there is actually no surviving portrait of Eliza. Um, and so we actually don't know what she looked like. Yeah, we know we, we know what her internal fortitude was, thanks mm -hmm. to, in part to, to your book here. Uh, we also know that this uh, blue is sort of coming up and around her. You only see her from the waist up. You see that she's mm -hmm. wearing a dress. It might be the kind of dress she could wear to work in the field like she does some in this book. Mm -hmm. But but the blue is kind of coming up around her and uh, almost behind her to her shoulder height uh, as if she was a part of the indigo herself. Immersed in it. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. so it's quite, quite amazing. Um, and she was also very small. That's the one thing that um, has been amazing. The Charleston um, Historic Museum has, uh, or the Museum of Charleston, I'm sorry, has shoes and a dress that belong to her and they're tiny i mean I, you know her her high heels that are sort of silk can fit on my hand they're just so small like children's shoes so all right all right so got a little background you ready to get under the covers if i must and i told you i don't i you managed to trick me <laughs> <laughs> I'm not tricking you about getting under the covers. I may have tricked you about about reading you about reading your section. Of your book. We're not we're not yeah. going to we're not going to read just yet. But but let's get okay. under the covers first. All right. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> hey, listeners! Before we get under the covers, I'd like to share some benefits that are available to you, our listeners. If you sign up for our email list at our website, CharlotteReadersPodcast.com. Uh, we will send you uh, a free ebook, the first book in my Christmas courtroom trilogy. We promise not to spam you. That just takes way too much time. We just provide a bi-weekly newsletter to let uh, listeners know what's coming and uh, allow you to engage with the show. Also, if you'd like to support your uh, favorite local independent bookstore and get audiobooks at the same time, uh, you can join Libro.fm. That's L-I-B-R-O.fm. And if you use the promo code Charlotte Reader, that's all one word, may not be from Charlotte, but you can still be a Charlotte reader to get this benefit. When you use that promo code, you're going to get uh, two books for the price of one when you join at uh, Libro's $14.99 monthly membership level. This is a great way to support uh, your local independent bookstore and get uh, great audiobooks uh, at the same time. So check it out. All right, so we're under the covers here now, and we're talking about the book The Indigo Girl by author Natasha Boyd. And uh, so Natasha... Um, Let's start before you do your reading here today. Um, a little bit about the time period and the setting. Uh, I know we're in the 1700s. Um, give us the location, time period, what this plantation might have looked like that uh, Eliza was on. Then we'll talk a little bit about the family dynamics next. Sure. Um, so, yes, you were right. 1700s were actually, um, the book spans 1739 to 1744. And it's set in Charleston, South Carolina, which at the time was called Charlestown. Um, the King of England was Charles. Um, and the plantation was really a farm. Um, I know that most people think of these sort of grand antebellum 
homes. Um, most plantations, um, except for, you know, very few, were just very work, hardworking farms and they had a, a homestead. Um, she was about six miles from Charleston by boat because they would cross the Ashley River from, from the peninsula. Um, they could go by horse, but it was 17 miles. They'd have to go all the way up the neck, cross with a little ferry at a smaller part of the river and come down. Um, and then she would travel to the other two plantations, one of which was up the um, Port Royal Sound inland from there, and the other one which was up towards Georgetown, further up the coast towards modern-day Pauley's Island. And she had uh, slaves on this, you call it a farm plantation. Mm-hmm. Um, and she had a complicated relationship as well. You talked about yeah. that in the book. Yeah. she. Um, so her father purchased uh, one of the pieces of land he was left by his father um, and then he purchased two additional pieces of land that came with so a lot of the time the enslaved humans came and tailed to the property um she i was very lucky in the writing of this book that um andrea fisa who's a professor in south carolina had actually found real historical documents that um told the names um, and ages, if where possible, um, and gender of the enslaved people on the Wapu plantation, which is where most of this book happens. Because I felt it would be just disingenuous. They're such a large part of the story, and she really owes it to them so much that um, it was really important for me to make sure that the real people who were involved are actually called by their real, you know, real names. Mm. Um, so yeah, she did, and she did have a complicated relationship with her slaves because um, at the time, um, it was they had just had the Stono Rebellion at the opening of the book, which was the enslaved Africans rebelling against being enslaved. Of course, they would, um, but the powers that be at the time were terrified that they were going to be outnumbered and overrun and killed in their beds, um, and so they tried to invoke something called the Negro Act which um, basically had a whole laundry list of things that you weren't allowed to do. And one of them were, you know, you couldn't educate your slaves because they were worried about them, you know, sharing messages and planning another rebellion. Um, And so she was very lucky that her father had educated her, even though most women and most girls of her time period um, weren't invested in as well in education. So education was so important to her. And she absolutely took it upon herself to include in her duties, um, educating her enslaved people on her plantation. Um, she was not in a position to um, really do much more than that. And she didn't really have the agency. But she did, you know, what she felt was super important. And that was to make sure that people could read and that they could go on and teach each other, um, you know, the basics at least. Yeah. And that does weave its way into the plot of the book a little bit. uh, And it does have a plot, even though it's historical fiction, it it, it reads, it's got a arc to it. Um, The family dynamics come into play here because uh, the father uh, is going back to an Island uh, to kind of pursue his military career. The mother is left behind and, Elias at only 16 or 17 is kind of the oldest. Her brothers are still in England. Um, and her father actually trusts her and defers to her, whereas her mother is simply wanting her to go to balls and get married off and can't really. So so what's going on here? And 
Well, um, it you know, most of the time, if a if a man was going away and has didn't have a, a son who was old enough to take over the family holdings, um, they would hire an overseer, which they did for the other two plantations. But he really did, and people find it unbelievable, but this is true fact, he really did leave his 16-year-old daughter in charge. And she was allowed to conduct business in his name. Um, her mother is really just fascinating because it's hard to understand what is going there's clearly something going on with her mother from the historical documents you can tell she has an ailment of some type it's not really named um maybe it's some kind of social anxiety or some kind of mental health issue that they didn't really understand or have a name for at the time but eliza writes letters and every letter she writes she makes copies that's why we are so lucky to have you know access to first-hand historical account today um but she never mentions her mother, even though she writes about everything. She writes about the mocking, but the mocking jays outside her window. Uh, you know, oh, mocking jay, mocking bird. That's why Suzanne Collins talking. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, but you know, she writes about everything, and just the fact that she never mentions her mother tells me more about her relationship with her than anything else could. And I really did have to fill in the blanks, and I drew on you know, at the time, how important was it to marry off your daughters? And it was really important because yeah. they they were a burden otherwise. They were, you know, another mouth to feed. They could make advantageous matches and, you know, those kind of things. So, so, so yeah, so complicated there too. But you, it was nice that in the book you used some of her actual letters to help tell the story. And I'm just curious, um, and maybe you can talk about this as you talk about Indigo itself, one of my questions has to, to do with the importance of the indigo crop at that time, but also what separated Eliza from other women of the day and how she took this crop as sort of a way to make her way forward. Mm. Um, well, certainly um, rice was the biggest export, which people don't, a lot of people don't, you know, they think of the South and they think of cotton, but this predated, way predated that time. And rice was the biggest export. And it was, very much um, going downhill. And there was a lot of tension with the Spanish. There was a lot of ships being, um, you know, uh, there were a lot of pirates off the coast and ships would be sunk. And, um, and it was just a sort of dangerous time for a colony to be trying to build an economy. Um, and she had heard how much the French uh, or the English paid the French for indigo dye. Hearing that and knowing that she needed to sort of um, assure her place in the family business so to speak I think she felt if she could prove herself she would be less chance of being married off quickly um and she uh had gone to ask for help and everyone said no you can't do that indigo doesn't grow here um and she was determined and you know her determined spoiler alert her determination paid off <laughs> over the course of four years but she was extremely um, different from the other girls of her time because she was so focused on um, the family finances. I think she knew at some point she would have to get married. She definitely writes to her father and says, you know, I just need more time. Like, just not yet. There's so much I can accomplish um, for you um, and for us. Um, I think she was extremely lucky that Charles Pinckney, who was a contemporary of her father's, who was very um, influential in Charleston, and he was a chief justice, um, just thought that she was the most charming 
ambitious little thing and thought it was fascinating that she was interested in all these affairs and she he would lend her law books. Um, and she was very much focused on um, humanity and women's roles, even without saying it outright. So when she discovered that somebody in the parish, um, the husband had died and left the wife destitute and the children, I mean, they were turned out of their home um, because there was no will. And so she took it upon herself to teach herself the law with the borrowed law books and then, you know, write wills for women in the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just, just a little part time thing while she's yeah, trying to. She was just very different. <laughs> and, and the important thing, I mean, this is historical fiction, but it does have like a novel. It has several reversals. Um, I'm not going to give it all away, but uh, she has some forces working against her as she's trying to make this crop, you know, come in. But this crop had not really been successful in this part of the colonies, right? Not and, at all. Mm -hmm. And she, and is she credited with actually making it successful? She absolutely is. Um, so when they finally had success, um, it was 1744, and they managed, they finally managed to make six pounds of the actual dye, and they sent it to the London Stock Exchange to be tested, and the answer came back that it was good, as good or better than the, French, than the indigo they were buying from the French. And that was a very important moment because that same year, um, England and France declared war against each other and England could no longer buy indigo from the French. Um, and so they immediately turned to the colonies, which was just in time because Eliza and, and Charles, because she ended, you know, ended up marrying Charles um, after the end of the book, um, they did share out the seeds among several planter families and you know, went on to become one of the largest exports out of the US. And what was it primarily used for? Um, it was used for dyeing, um, just all sorts of things, soldiers' uniforms, um, flags, I mean, anything that they needed blue for at the time. So not knowing much about indigo and uh, the plant itself, although I did learn in reading the book that it's kind of a scrappy little weedish kind of thing that grows up and you got a man handle it or a woman handle it, and, <laughs> and it's kind of hard, hard to deal with. So uh, did that crop run its course uh what's what's the history of indigo um it did run its course um you know it sort of laid the foundational wealth of the colonies up until the revolution and it really did um sort of uh buttress the the strength um in overthrow overthrowing the british but after that um you know different crops came through um cotton became really big so in the end it died out um, and it was very, very high maintenance, which is another thing. And it was extremely expensive to make. It was a very complicated process, which when you read the book, you'll understand. Um, and it's just a fascinating topic in and of itself. And I really did have to try and understand how indigo came to be as part of the research, because as well as not being a natural historian, <laughs> I also have a black thumb. I mean, I can kill mint. So... <laughs> So I really just was like, I don't understand how this plant grows. I don't understand when you plant it, like why it would die, when it's harvested. And then not only that, the actual process of making the indigo is just fascinating because you can't understand how people have known this or known the secret of making the dye for, you know, thousands of years. And when you really get the fact that it's a double step chemical 
process, like the breaking down of a molecule and then its reconstruction. Because when it's first made, it's not water soluble. It can't dye anything. They have to do all this extra stuff to it. And then it's not even blue. And then by the time they dip something into the water and pull it out, it comes out green. And it's only the oxygen in the air that ultimately turns it blue. So you think, how on earth did these people figure this out? So you can imagine the the process of, you know, um, sharing this information. It wasn't really easily um, copyable, whatever, um, by other people. Sorry, that's a terrible, no. <laughs> terrible butchering of a word, copyable. No. No, but that that's part of the story itself because nobody knew uh, back then how this was done except uh, maybe some of the enslaved people, which mm-hmm. is part part of the story itself. And Eliza was all about trying to figure out, you know, this secret because if she could do it and no one else could, she could make a difference, which she ended up doing. And before you do your read here, I'm just curious. She ended up marrying Charles Pinckney. Again, spoiler alert, but uh, you know she was good friends with he and his wife. His wife became ill. They found each other. They gave birth to children who had an influence on the colonies as well. Why was it that George Washington wanted to be a pallbearer at her funeral? Well, he had become very close to the family. Um, You know, her two sons, both Thomas and um, uh, Charles, Charles, younger Charles, um, had been very involved um, in the formation of of, uh, the new America. Um, Charles was invited to a more national stage, but he chose to return to South Carolina. Um, And Thomas um, was actually the author of the Pinckney Treaty, which was one of our most important trade agreements in in America. And it gave uh, the US use of the Mississippi River for trade. Um, So they were extremely important. And you can understand why you know, she might have been eclipsed by her sons, but I think we know now that we can thank their mom for making such sterling, ambitious boys. Exactly. All right, so you got a little read here. Um, how about setting this read up, and then if you would read it for us, tell us. This is uh, not at the beginning of the book. We're more we're further into the story, so kind of mm-hmm. ground ground us in what's going on here and set set up this read, if you would. Okay, so um, I'm going to read from. Um, a passage that is just a little over halfway through the book. And um, Eliza has um, has decided she wants to take more of a firm role in uh, teaching her the, the enslaved people on her plantation. But the Negro Act um, has uh, sort of said that, you know, there was some stipulations and um, things that you couldn't do. So she goes to see Charles um, and asks him, for his advice. This is also right after she has turned down a suitor who's come calling, looking for a lady with land. Um, <laughs> and um, and I think you'll see when I get to the end why I chose this as far as the, uh, the woman's angle. So this is Charles speaking. It says here that you may not teach slaves to write. I played his words over again in my head. And It says nothing about reading, just writing. He looked down again. Yes, it would seem so. Well, that certainly seems odd. I'm not sure one can learn one without accidentally learning the other. I'd have to agree. An idea came to mind that would perhaps get around anyone who became concerned with my project. But I suppose one would need to be able to read in order to learn the moral principles of the Bible. 
And pray, what scheme have you concocted? Just a little project. Teach some of the Negro children to read so they may seek counsel from the Bible. I knew the lie was written all over my face. All right. Charles's eyebrows were sky high, causing a ladder of lines upon his brow. His mouth twisted to a smirk. Well, you'll let me know how you get on. Of course. In fact, I should very much like to hear about all your endeavours. I have a feeling I'll be much entertained. He frowned. But I fear if we correspond too frequently, it might seem odd. Me being an unmarried woman. Well, yes. Mrs Pinckney is so fond of you. He cleared his throat. <clears throat> As am I, but others may not approve. Such as my mother... I must thank you and Mrs Pinckney for being so accepting in light of my Hordenish reputation, and I've gotten along famously with Miss Bartlett. We have talked about keeping in touch. As a dutiful uncle, I'm sure you must read her correspondence. He looked up sharply. Indeed I do. Well then, I shall write her detailed missives on my exploits, and that way you can be sure to hear all about my endeavours. Well, I'm not saying you can't correspond directly with me. I know. I'm just saying there are many ways to let you know of all my business endeavours without needlessly raising the eyebrows of people with too much time on their hands, especially since I gave my last suitor the boot, quite literally, and I shall remain an amateur spinster botanist for as long as I have land upon which to practice. Charles's eyes flicked away. About Mr Lawrence. A smile played around his lips. I must say he told quite a grand tale, but then he's always been known to embellish, a fact for which I I must be grateful. I raised an eyebrow. So you didn't believe him? Oh, I believed him. Charles let out a chuckle and shook his head side to side. But then I think I see a part of your personality no one else does. Uh, what would that be? Well, I don't believe you've ever met an obstacle you felt you couldn't overcome. His eyes were fond, but still thoughtful. I tried to smile, though my lips were tight. I had. I had met an obstacle I couldn't overcome. I... I can't be a son, and there isn't much I can do about that. I'd say that was a rather large obstacle. Th throughout this book, there are all these scenes where she is a woman standing up against tradition, standing up against other men who want to talk down to her. Um, but she's using her guile and her wit. And along comes Charles Pinkney, who just thinks it's great, and he wants to support her <laughs> in yeah. every, way, every way that he can. And then, you know, the universe puts them together you know, in the end. Um, so let's talk writing life just a second. We don't have much time, but I'll do a few few questions. Um, how did writing this book, um, Natasha, advance your writing journey? Did you feel any different about yourself as a writer having done this, uh, having written all these romance novels? Not to say romance writers mm -hmm. aren't good writers, because I know a lot of really great authors who are writing romance, and I think you get a bad rap sometimes about that in the romance world. But well, did you. <laughs> and, yeah. So, but did writing this world, um, writing this book, do something different in your own mind? Or, um, I'm very proud of the book. Um, it definitely stretched me as a writer. Um, and I did sort of feel a sense of I have my bona fides. Like nobody can tell me that I'm just a romance writer anymore, right. um, which is a stupid reason to <laughs> to write a book. <laughs> just a romance writer who sold uh, books in 53 countries yeah, and yada, yada, yeah. yada, yada, yeah, yeah. I know, yeah. crazy. Um, yeah, but I think just being able to work in that world and the con the the constraints of trying to fit a great uh, story arc 
um, you know, with its highs and lows in a way that readers expect and the black moment and all of those things, but fit it into the actual timeline of when things happened. And you can't mess with the history, but you have to be able to add enough to it that it brings it alive. Um, it just, it was difficult. And there were times I wanted to just, you know what, this is beyond me, it's too much. Um, and then I would think about Eliza and think about her going, great, so nobody's ever going to talk about me. <laughs> so I, it kept me going, she kept me going. But, 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 you're, but you're right, because in a good novel, you know, there's an exciting incident, there's going to be mm-hmm. uh, a rever- an obstacle and a reversal and a challenge, and they've got to take it on, and they've got doubts about it, and then another reversal, and then, you know, a climax, and a, you know, and yet, History doesn't always work that way. And yeah. so did you find yourself taking sort of your template for writing a book and saying, hey, where can I find these facts are going to fit? Yes. Is yes. Right? I had moments like that where I was like, okay, I just want to put everything on a piece of tracing paper and then lay it out. I actually had pieces of paper taped together with um, a long line drawn and then post-it notes of dates and times the whole way along. And so I could look at it and go, okay, maybe these little things need to be bunched up closer together so that it's got more impact, yeah. you know, things like that. So it was, it was like a jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, it was fun. It so what was the most enjoyable part? Because I know that uh, you probably have a good time writing your romance stories. This was, this was a challenging in a lot of ways, but what was gratifying about this experience for you? Gosh, so much of it. I think really capturing the essence of Eliza um, without making her um, unlikable, sort of, not unlikable, but without sort of going too far. She definitely, you know, when she has this one letter to her father where she says, and she's talking about Mr. L, and she says, if you put the riches of, of Peru and Chile together, you still couldn't purchase sufficient esteem for me to make him my husband. Like she's so mad that anybody would try to set her up with this Mr. L. And that's a real letter that she wrote. And I just thought, wow, like, there you go. That's her personality. So I think the most gratifying part of the whole thing was being able to distill that essence of her and then and be able to write the story because it's written first person, but with that in mind and with that tone and sort of view on life cheekiness <laughs> yeah, I, I can hear you yorkie in the background there now Sorry. That, no no problem i've got dog i've got a dog sitting down here right here so now that you've done this uh you're still are you still primarily a romance uh author or are you still are you going to be looking for other stories like this to tell since you've had a good experience with it both um you know this book um really has been so fantastic i have book clubs still reading it last week i did three virtual book clubs alone you know, it's kind of taken on a life of its own. And um, there are, I know that there are other women's stories out there that need to be told. And if I can be a vehicle for those, that would be great. I will never stop writing romance, I don't think. I enjoy it. I've got readers who, um, you know, will read all my romances and won't read a historical fiction. Um, But I definitely, I think there's definitely things uh, that I'd like to take on. The education of women being one of them. Um, but th- things have to, you know, the right person has to come along. As I said, Eliza pretty much drove this story and kept me going when I almost felt like I just couldn't do it. So um, another person like that would um, would be fantastic. I think I have my eye on someone, but I'm still uh, doing the research. So we'll see. Okay. Well, well, I understand. I, I, I'm friends with a few romance uh, authors, and I know that 
they can crank out some books and it's a different process sometimes than doing what you did here. Mm -hmm. how, how many romance books can you put out a year compared to, you know, doing something like this? This is a much longer project, right? This is a much longer project. Um, you know, I will say though that I definitely, after this book, and then I brought out two romance novels, I had, I definitely suffered from a lot of burnout and I had, um, some other family stuff going on. So I've definitely taken a break. I've been writing all the time, but I've taken a break on the production schedule. Um, but I would say, you know, it, it's, you could probably write two romance novels a year. And I know people who write one a month, <laughs> depending on the length. And they, they just have a great formula. They've already got a world set up. It's series based and they can just keep going. I find it really difficult to stay in series. So I'm constructing something new most of the time. So that obviously takes a bit longer. But this, I mean, doing the research um, and making sure you have it right. And, um, you know, it's just it is it's just a different part of your brain and it's a longer process. So, yeah. All right. Well, this is a this has been a fun episode today. Listeners, you're going to find out more about uh, Natasha Boyd in the show notes, uh, photographs, uh, links, uh, information about uh, how to find her and connect with her, and also about this book, The Indigo Girl. You'll also see the book cover in the show notes as well, so check that out at uh, charlottereaspodcast.com. Uh, Natasha, uh, I want to thank you for spending time today with me to talk about this uh, fascinating story. Landis, thank you so much for having me on. And thank you to Jessica, I guess, for telling you to have me on. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Appreciate it. Yeah. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Now offering video visits so you can take control of your orthopedic care from the comfort of your home. Schedule online at orthocarolina.com. Ortho Carolina, you improved.